Welcome back to Pediatric Chat. My name is Jay Greenspan. I'm chair of pediatrics and joining me as always is Paul Rosen. Hi, Paul. Hey, Jay. Today on Pediatric Chat, we have the distinguished guest. We're very pleased to have Dr. Shija Abraham here, pediatric gastroenterology. Hello. Hi, Jay. Nice to be here. Great to have you. And we know that pediatric gastroenterology is one of our favorite referrals for all moms because kids today just have lots of problems from the mouth down all the way through the GI tract. There are all sorts of pains and aches and issues. And so we really wanted to have a specialist in the field to help guide us through some of these challenges that kids face today. Joining us today, we have some esteemed guests. Dr. Michelle Carton has also joined us. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jay. Nice to be here. And Aaron, you want to start? Hi, I'm Aaron, and I have two boys, uh, six and nine years old. And I am Laura, and I have one daughter who's two and a half. So we're going to kick it off with any opening comments about some of your favorite questions you get commonly from parents, Shija. Well, you know, I think um, in pediatrics, GI is a very common area of concern, um, right from infancy all the way up to adolescence, who's eating patterns may not always be the best. Um, and I think the, the, the situation evolves over time. So as an infant, as a parent, you're very involved in the feeding and the stooling patterns. And as they get older, your control over those areas and your knowledge about those areas seem to diminish. So uh, sometimes we're not seeing adolescents uh, until they've had issues for a while, because as a parent, you're just not aware of some of these uh, things that have been going on and they tend to be a little bit closed-mouthed about things. So I think as a parent, you have a different challenges at different age ranges, and I think the older children tend to be a little bit more difficult because the infant and the toddler, you're very aware of everything that's going in and coming out. Erin, you want to kick us off? I'm lactose intolerant, mm-hmm. and I also have a gluten sensitivity, and I'm just sort of wondering, is any of that hereditary? Is that something that I need to look for with the boys? You know, the arena of gluten sensitivity, gluten intolerance, all the way over uh, to celiac disease has some variable genetics associated with it, but there does seem to be a hereditary component to that. And certainly with celiac disease, which is well-defined, we do understand the heredity behind that. And and there is, uh, you know, a reasonable risk in family, in first-degree family members. So parents, children, siblings, there is a, a genetic risk for that. Lactose intolerance is a little bit more of a vague uh, scenario. It is something that's fairly common in the general population, especially as you age. So a lot of adults have lactose intolerance. Many children do not. But in that interim phase, as they become school age and into adolescence, the likelihood of lactose intolerance increases. If you have issues with lactose intolerance, it may be a little bit more likely that your child would have it, but a lot of times it's more a matter of recognition. So because you have the condition, you're able to recognize the symptoms a little bit better. So I guess to piggyback off of Erin, I have Mm -hmm. um, Crohn's disease, and I was diagnosed uh, a few years ago. Um, I'm in remission right now, but I was also wondering about Crohn's. Do you see that as being something that is passed down? Uh, My daughter presents, she's got severe eczema, and I didn't know if there was any sort of correlation with some sort of um, autoimmune with Crohn's and and the eczema. Like, is this something that I gave her genetically or, or what your thoughts are? 
We do know that inflammatory bowel disease, of which Crohn's is a subset, uh, is a genetically mediated condition. So you pretty much have to have the genes to develop the disease. While we've identified some of the genes, I think it's fair to say that there's probably quite a number of genes that are associated with the disease, and we haven't identified all of them. But we do know that there is a family linkage. Uh, So about uh, 20% of individuals do have a positive family history. What that means is that about 80% don't have a family history. And uh, does that mean that this is something different? Is it a new mutation? Is it a rare combination of two different unusual genes? It's possible. But if there is a history of Crohn's disease in the family, we certainly do have a higher index of suspicion for uh, GI symptoms in a child with that family history. But, you know, I think for you, it's important to keep in mind that there's that whole 80% that doesn't have uh, the condition. So there are plenty of families where a parent may have the disease and none of their children have it or will ever develop it. Is the eczema, I didn't, with her, we didn't give her any gluten. I have also a gluten sensitivity that I think exacerbates my Crohn's Mm flare-ups. And so um, my my GI had said it's uh, perhaps not a gluten sensitivity, but something else in the flour since I've tested negative for celiac, she feels that there is some sort of starch intolerance mm-hmm. that I have, but we aren't as similarly as what you said. We aren't there scientifically to really pinpoint what exactly it is that is in the in the flour or something. If it's not the gluten, it must be something else. But you know, it's tied to what's in the food that I eat. But my daughter, we didn't do gluten. And then she presented around nine months severe eczema. And so we've been going through different treatments, topical steroids, and now she's on internal um, antihistamines. So just to kind of keep it at bay, is there a link to, I guess, with, with her eczema, something that she's eating, something she's consuming? We really do try to do grass-fed beef, milk, all organic, all of her dairy is organic. Um, So her diet is not full of junk, I should Mm -hmm, say, mm -hmm. Uh, dye-free as as much as possible. But is there a a correlation between what she's eating and the eczema? Do you see that in your patients? We do. Um, So as a separate issue from the inflammatory bowel disease, uh, there can be associations with diet and skin findings, particularly eczema. We see it a lot more in very young children and infants and toddlers. It seems to be less of an association in older kids. But we see a lot of infants who have, say, milk allergy, who may have a GI milk allergy, but it may also manifest with skin associations. Uh, So often we'll see that when we take milk out of the baby's diet, the skin gets better. And of all of the allergens out there, milk is going to be the most common one. So, you know, of all the dietary food allergens, milk protein, cow's milk protein is the highest one. So I think that that association is probably a lot bigger than the gluten association is. There are certain skin conditions that are associated specifically with gluten intolerance or celiac disease that's different from eczema. Yeah, her bowels are nothing, yeah. you, know, you know, remarkable or anything. Right. Um, it's just her, her poor little skin. Um, and that she was tested for dairy. We did the whole, at her one year, mm-hmm. we tested for everything. And then she just had an environmental one done too, poor thing. So um, she's tested negative except for a couple of trees and grass. But um, she did test for dairy and it was no problem. Um, yeah. So that's where I'm kind of like, uh, did it, was it, is there a correlation between the Crohn's that I'm giving and it just presents in a different way in that whole autoimmune umbrella, if that is possible? 
We don't often see that association of eczema with inflammatory bowel disease. Okay, that's so, what I was, okay. you know, yeah. uh, eczema uh, is such a fairly common allergic type of situation that we're seeing more of these days. So it may be a matter of too true and unrelated. Um, but certainly, I think if you have a child whose eczema is not improving with all the usual types of things, it's not a bad idea to try sort of a sequential elimination of some of the big food allergy groups, even if you've got negative allergy testing. Do you find that that sometimes happens? If it you... sometimes happens. Not often. Uh, okay. You know, they, they are some, uh, but there can be, I would say there's probably a subset of patients for whom food triggers their eczema. Interesting. And is there something, a supplement that you often prescribe your patients, um, you know, besides the probiotics, um, and then I understand the Mm -hmm. refrigerated ones, the powder Mm -hmm. ones, I kind of sneak through. Um, Is there any other um, vitamins that are good for a healthy gut? That's pretty a priority for our family. Yeah, I think uh, in terms of someone who doesn't have underlying disease, you know, there's not a whole lot of supplements we recommend. Um, But, you know, two of the ones that we do know have beneficial effect for the gut are uh, fish oil, the omega-3 fish oils, uh, and probiotics. And again, choosing the right one that has viable bacterial colonies is important. Um, But, you know, in the next decade, I think our focus of our research is going to really uh, hammer down a little bit better what we call the gut microbiome, which is really a universe of, of bacteria and uh, even parasites and other organisms. Uh, and we're really just scraping the surface with the probiotics. So, you know, uh, but I think it's what we have right now, and it certainly doesn't hurt. So it's worth uh, really pursuing that. Do you feel that recently there seems to be, I mean, at least in, in my little world, so many people with GI issues. Um, it's very interesting of when I, you know, discuss my Crohn's with people, how many people and their children, um, people have reached out to me or, or conversations that it seems GI, I mean, and it's even, you know, indicative of a wait time to see a GI, mm-hmm. you know, is, is months sometimes. What do you attribute that to? Why all of a sudden are people having digestive issues and gastro issues, I should say? Yeah, I think that's a really perceptive, uh, you know, notion. Uh, I think it's uh, really uh, important to understand that the incidence of many autoimmune and allergic diseases are increasing in general in our population. And there's many theories about why that is. But I think specifically in terms of the GI tract, what we know about diseases like celiac and Crohn's is that there's a genetic predisposition. So you're born with that. You have to have that basis. But then there's an environmental factor that sort of trips that gene on, you know, sets things in motion. Um, And, you know, this is uh, just my personal observation. I think that when I look back 25 years ago, the dietary patterns that not just children, but all of us have had, has shifted quite dramatically. So, you know, because as we were talking about food allergies and so on, if you pick up any packaged food, and now the FDA's really regulated uh, labeling a little bit better, but almost anything that comes in a package probably has milk, soy, and gluten in it. 
And 20 years ago, if you think back to like when we were all kids, what was in your lunchbox, you know, and what did you eat through the course of a week? Mostly home cooked foods and very little processed foods. And fast forward 25, 30 years later, most of us, I think even those of us who try to really watch what we're eating, it's challenging to not eat something that's processed through the course of a week. And when you look at children's diets, you know, that's really altered quite significantly. So certainly we're seeing that whole obesity epidemic, you know, which goes along with some of these changes in dietary patterns. But I believe that a lot of the GI illnesses that we're seeing are related to a large intake of a lot of different proteins that weren't in our diet before. So do you recommend going back to the probiotic issue that everyone takes a probiotic or only in certain circumstances? Yeah, I don't think it's necessary for general health. If you're uh, eating well and you have a well-rounded diet and your child hasn't been on antibiotics often, uh, I don't think it's absolutely necessary. I think if you're having some GI symptoms, if you have a child who is often on antibiotics, and by often I mean, you know, a couple of times a year, so not someone who needs to be on antibiotics every month, I think it's valuable to uh, do probiotics in that setting, but not for everyone, you know. So you have a child who eats a fairly varied diet, uh, who is stooling well, doesn't have abdominal symptoms, is growing well, uh, doesn't really take a lot of other medications. I don't think it's critical. And naturally occurring probiotics in, uh, you know, yogurt and other fermented foods are probably fine as well. And what about for a child who tends to be constipated? Would a probiotic help in that situation? You know, we don't quite understand why, but I do think that we see that often. A child who's got mild symptoms, you know, I think what it does is it helps with the bloating and the gas that's associated with the constipation, um, and it can be help to make them a little bit more regular. So some of the enhanced yogurts like the Activia or the Danactive, they have not only the probiotics, but they also have some fiber in there. So I think for a child who's mildly constipated, starting with something like that would be great. And and many adults even find that it's helpful for them if they have, say, IBS or something along that line. So that's a reasonable starting point, I think. Dr. Abraham, being a general pediatrician Mm -hmm. here, I see lots and lots of families who ask about constipation, particularly when children are learning how to potty train. And then early in school, when they don't like to go to the bathroom in school, what are some of the tips that you tell parents and, and strategies and how to get through those times? I think, you know, children are creatures of habit. And so I think when you're starting the whole potty training process, I think demystifying the bathrooms is really very helpful. So, you know, if you're out and about, take your child in with you when you go to the public restroom, you know. Uh, I hear all kinds of scary things about bathrooms, and it gives you perspective uh, because, you know, I find that children tell you many things that uh, we as adults forget about. But I've had children who went to a public restroom and just the the flush was so loud that it scared them, or the hand dryer is so loud it scares them. So I think having them exposed to some of those sounds and noises and also being in, uh, having that notion that, you know, you don't always just go to the bathroom at home uh, is really helpful. Um, I think for school-age children, uh, particularly a child who's just starting preschool or is just starting kindergarten uh, or is entering a new school, I think taking, you know, that introductory day uh, to have walk through 
through the classroom, but walk through the restroom. Say, oh, look at your new bathroom. You know, again, you want to make it a comfortable extension of your home bathroom. And I think that that is such a critical piece of getting toddlers into that whole potty training episode. Because the majority of the kids who get constipated, Mm -hmm. they get constipated because they withhold at school or when they're outside the home. And that's the difficulty, I think. Um, So, and of course, when we're potty training, you're doing it intensely in your home bathroom. And now you just all of a sudden want them to use the school bathroom. That's just not going to happen. Any tips for a nine-year-old who only only go in his own home? Um, I think exploring with them what their concerns are with the other bathrooms. Uh, Again, we hear all kinds of horror stories about school bathrooms, you know. Plus, there's so many rules at school Mm -hmm. about when you can go and how long you can go and, and so on. So school environments are not often conducive to good bowel habits. So I think exploring with the child, why don't you like to go at school? Is it that the bathrooms are dirty? Is it that they're far? You know, now we have all these very large schools, and sometimes it's quite a hike from one class to uh, where the bathrooms are or where you have to be for your next class. And so there may not be enough time. Or sometimes we hear about teachers who are a little bit more strict about letting children go. So I think exploring what's the hesitation, Mm -hmm. and then as a parent, you know, navigating, helping them to navigate that and to fix that problem is probably the best. Shija, you mentioned the term IBS, Mm -hmm. which is irritable bowel syndrome. Right. Could you go into a little more detail explaining what irritable bowel syndrome is and how it differs from inflammatory bowel disease? Sure. Irritable bowel syndrome is what we consider a functional disorder, which means that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with the gut that we can, you know, sort of see, touch, or feel. Whereas inflammatory bowel disease is an uh, inflammatory condition. It's a chronic illness that does affect the lining of the gut, uh, may affect different parts of the bowel. Initially, the symptoms may be quite similar. So you may end up with abdominal pain, bloating, diarrhea, gas. It's very unusual to have bleeding with irritable bowel syndrome, whereas it can be a common feature in inflammatory bowel disease. So that can sometimes be a differentiating factor. The important thing to understand is that uh, inflammatory bowel disease is a chronic GI disorder and can have many complications, whereas irritable bowel syndrome does not typically lead to any complications or concerning growth or developmental issues, but it can be significant enough symptom-wise to really impact an individual's life. So we see young people who feel like it's very hard to make plans. They can't necessarily go out with friends and just eat wherever, or, um, you know, they kind of know all the bathroom stops along the way of their route to places. So sometimes uh, it can be far more debilitating than a patient who's well-controlled with their inflammatory bowel disease. From a physician's standpoint, sometimes it's much easier to manage a condition like inflammatory bowel disease which we understand what causes it, and, uh, or we have a better understanding of what's causing it, what the underlying process is, and we have a lot of medications that we can offer. Unfortunately, uh, we're still sort of in the dark ages with understanding irritable bowel syndrome in terms of understanding what's setting these symptoms off. And so because of that, our medication availability is much more limited. I think, again, we're going to see that arena really exploding over the next uh, decade or 
or so because more individuals have irritable bowel. Um, it's uh, become something that uh, many researchers and pharmaceutical companies are interested in developing medications for. And, you know, even now you hear about uh, some medications on TV and on the radio, none of which are unfortunately yet approved for children, but they're coming. And, uh, you know, I think the results are very promising with those medications. Dr. Abraham, mm-hmm. we talked before a little bit about milk protein allergy, mm-hmm. and that's another area um, as a general pediatrician that I feel I'm seeing more infants um, with concerns for those symptoms. Right. Can you please address some of the symptoms that you typically see with infants who have milk protein allergy? Yes, that's a great question, Michelle. So uh, as we are seeing more allergic diseases occurring, I think uh, definitely we're seeing more infants with milk allergy. And, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon that occurs really just in that first year of infancy. And it's related to uh, the maturation of the infant immune system. So they seem to be a little bit more prone to developing a reaction to common food proteins. And of course, the majority of infants are getting um, cow milk-based formulas, or moms who are breastfeeding are also taking in some dairy. So that's the common food allergen protein that they're exposed to. And it is a GI allergy. So just like a peanut allergy or an individual who has other respiratory or skin-triggered allergies, even a minuscule amount of the protein can cause symptoms. And, and it, it does actually cause injury to the GI tract. So again, 20, 25 years ago, before this was all that well described, we used to scope infants who had bloody diarrhea, which is a common symptom of this condition. And for all the world, their rectum looks the same as a person with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's colitis. So visibly, the damage is very similar. And because of that, the symptoms are very similar. So they get gas, they get bloating, they get cramping, they get diarrhea. And if it progresses, you'll see mucus and blood in the stools. So the symptoms are very similar to adults who have inflammatory bowel disease with colitis. So those are the common symptoms we see. But I would say that uh, in infants who are fussy, who are irritable, you just can't get them settled down. They may spit up a lot or they may not. They may have some loose stools or they may not. We find that uh, checking the stools in these infants and finding traces of blood in it may lead us towards thinking about more of a milk protein allergy or an intolerance as opposed to reflux, which we think about often in fussy infants who are crying all the time and not happy to eat. So that can be a different set of symptoms that we see. Very occasionally, we might see a child who's got some respiratory symptoms or, as we mentioned earlier, some eczema-like lesions on their skin as well. And a lot of those things do get better with milk elimination. The one question that comes up a Mm -hmm. lot, we've dealt with this a lot in the chats, it's pain, right? So mm-hmm. we talk about head pain, headaches we had a t- chat on, and back pain. You guys see a lot of belly pain. Yeah. And I think anecdotally that that happens often in the fall when school starts. And so <laughs> we, we think there's a relationship. But what do you do as a parent? What should you do if your child is starting to talk about having belly pain? What's the alarms and what to look for when to seek you out? Yeah, I think, um, Jay, you're right. Belly pain is sort of difficult uh, scenario for a parent to navigate because, you know, are they having appendicitis or they just don't like their math teacher? You know, it's a, it's a challenging uh, difference to feel out from your child. I think the things that should be concerning is, do you find complaints of abdominal pain when it's 
you know, it's a preferred activity. So a child who's off to gymnastics and they love gymnastics class and now they're not able to participate because they have abdominal pain. Or is it now starting to impact their eating? Are they eating less? Are you concerned that they may be losing weight? Do they wake up in the middle of the night with pain? Um, You know, anything that wakes you up from a sleep is of concern because that's typically means it's something more organic, as we say, meaning there's a reason for that. Children who have vomiting, diarrhea, blood in the stool, fevers that sort of come and go, if they tend to be bloated a lot, uh, those are all symptoms that should be pursued a little bit more. And as I said earlier, sometimes in the older child, you don't get complaints of these things. You might hear about a bellyache that prevents them from doing something, but they're not volunteering to you what their bowel movements look like or if there's blood. We've seen patients who come in with very low blood counts and the parent is not aware that the child's been bleeding for 10 months because they didn't want to mention it or they were embarrassed or they were scared. Um, So I think with an older child, If they're complaining of belly pain, well, what else is going on? Are you nauseous? Are you having vomiting episodes? Because again, it may not be something that's always apparent because you're not there when it happens. Do they have diarrhea? What are their stools like? Are they seeing blood in the toilet? Um, So I think exploring that and then sort of keeping a mental eye when when you're with them at mealtimes, are they eating the way they normally did or are they curtailing their intake? Do they seem to kind of stop a little bit sooner than you'd expect? Are their portion sizes getting smaller? I think those things are helpful to kind of direct you towards seeking help a little bit. For things like we had talked about, mm-hmm. IBS and IBD, and mm-hmm. do you feel there's any merit to diagnosing a child earlier as opposed to because I've I you know I was diagnosed as an adult, mm-hmm. but I can tell you when it started was mm-hmm. early childhood. I you know I have memories of this my whole life. So would you feel that diagnosing, getting your child to see a gastroenterologist when you see something presented? is beneficial or kind of like, as you said, you know, kind of just sitting and waiting, like what would you feel is is the time to make an appointment with a gastroenterologist? I think if you're not seeing any of those alarm symptoms, I would probably watch for a few weeks and then maybe start with your pediatrician to say, well, you know, do you feel this is concerning? And as we talked about, there may be some minor things that we could do, you know, maybe a change in the diet, some addition of things like probiotics or fish oils or making some dietary changes. These things may be helpful. So I think, you know, if you've been monitoring for two or three weeks and you feel like this is sort of a persistent complaint, I'm hearing about it often. And even if you don't have any of those symptoms, I think it's great to touch base with your pediatrician and maybe even bring them in so they could be examined to make sure there's, you know, gee, their weight's been terrific since the last time we saw them. You know, if you're eating and gaining weight, there's very little that's terribly wrong in your gut. So that's all often a reassuring factor for us. But and again, you're not necessarily weighing them at home. So I think uh, starting off after a couple of weeks with your pediatrician is a really good place to start. And then together you can make a decision if uh, making a subspecialty appointment is necessary. And to answer your earlier question, absolutely. I think diagnosing a condition earlier decreases the likelihood that you're going to have complications gives that child a better quality of life, you know, so I'm sure you can remember a lot of your childhood not 
being well and not maybe being able to function at your fullest. And it would have been great if uh, you could have been diagnosed and treated, you know, five or 10 years earlier. But we do know that childhood inflammatory bowel disease is often far more aggressive than adult onset disease. So again, intervening early is critical, especially because we're in that unique uh, phase of life where the growth and development needs to occur. So in uh, many GI conditions, nutrition is impacted, which then affects bone development, which affects uh, the ultimate height that a child is going to achieve. And then if your nutrition's not adequate and you have inflammation in your body, even if it's low level, it's going to impact puberty and pubertal changes and, and delay some of those things. So I think in pediatrics, you know, we have a, that critical element where you have that 10-year time frame where growth development pubertal uh, changes all have to occur. And if we miss that window of opportunity, you may have an adult who could have been a few inches taller, who could have had maybe a easier time of things in adolescence, you know, but uh, aside from the cosmetic reasons for those things, definitely the impact of ill health on uh, growth and development is critical. So you feel that that we're getting further away because I believe the last study that I, I read was, you know, with all of it. So, mm-hmm. you know, celiac, Crohn's, colitis, that on average you are misdiagnosed for about six times. I thought it was the last research. So are we kind of getting more on the mark of diagnosing what, you know, it, it's not just being blanketed as IBS, that we're digging a little bit deeper to find out kind of A, the root, and B, to kind of diagnose it appropriately? Um, yeah, I think so. I think because, first of all, parents are more informed. Mm-hmm. So as a parent, even if you didn't have inflammatory bowel disease, you're far more attuned to looking for something that's out of the ordinary. Again, I think, you know, our families um, a few decades ago were, oh, go back out and play. You know? <laughs> There's a little less of that uh, checking in with your child. You didn't really hear about things unless it was the major issue. So I think we're far more in sync with our children. And then as uh, parents, you're a much more informed consumer. You know, you, uh, there's lots of different ways to get health information. And I think most, as a generation, you know, I think people are more focused on good health. So it's a different practice than it used to be a few decades ago, where it was you took care of a problem when it happened. You weren't sort of looking for something uh, before it occurred. And then I think we do have better testing. So over time, we've uh, gotten better uh, non-invasive screening tests for things like Crohn's and celiac and a variety of other GI conditions. And then our invasive testing has gotten easier, has gotten safer. Our uh, anesthetic capabilities are better for children. So very many things have evolved to make us better at diagnosing conditions earlier. So you're bringing it to attention earlier, your pediatrician's able to do screening tests uh, better, and then when we see you, we're less hesitant about pursuing more invasive testing in a younger child than we would have been 15 years ago. Well, we certainly have learned a lot today, and I knew we would. Uh, GI is such an important part of pediatrics, and um, the weights for specialists are enormous. We've just added a couple more gastroenterologists to meet that need, but uh, it's a problem that keeps going, and we're not quite sure why it's so prevalent, but we've certainly learned a lot about the importance of healthy eating and GI health and uh, catching issues early and what, what some of the warning signs are. So thanks so much. Any final thoughts, too? 
Yeah, I mean, it's just an evolving area. And, you know, from a rheumatology perspective, we're seeing more autoimmunity and more overlap where kids are presenting not just with stomach pain or joint pain, but they're presenting with multiple issues and multiple organ systems. Yes. And um, I think all the specialists need to work together with the primary pediatricians. And there's this movement in you know, healthcare to get more teams uh, together to diagnose these complex things. So thank you for your work. A lot more to do. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank yeah, you. thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question about this topic, or if there's another topic you'd like us to explore in a future pediatric chat, you can send it to us by using the question portal on our webpage. And be sure to view our library for more pediatric chat programs. I'm Dr. Jay Greenspan, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.